we turn our attention to Psalm 79, I'm sorry, Psalm 59, a psalm that David wrote during one of the most lonely nights of his life. Or at least it was during the first really lonely night of his life. This psalm is most likely the oldest psalm that David wrote, and he wrote it during a time in his life when he was being persecuted and hunt down. Two weeks ago, when we were, as we were continuing to journey through the life of David, we looked at 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and saw and examined God's faithfulness, God's protection in the midst of these six different episodes where Saul was trying to kill David. Two different times hurling a spear at him, trying to get him killed by the Philistines, putting guards around his house to have him killed, um, ultimately going up to uh, as, as David fled to Samuel, Saul sending his men there to kill David. And the psalm that we come to today was the psalm that David wrote, reflecting upon that experience of when he was being persecuted, hunt down, and attempted to be killed through no fault of his own. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 59. To the choir master, according to the Do Not Destroy, a midcom of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening when they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city, there they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who? they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will, God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride, for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Almighty God, 
our fortress, our deliverer, our protection, the one in whom we take refuge. Father, may we take refuge in you and see that you are our shelter in a time of storm, that we are never alone, and that through Jesus Christ you have made us your own and drawn us to yourself. Father, guide us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, it looks like I am going to have a really fun semester. Those are the words of, the, of my East Asian philosophy and thought, the professor for East Asian philosophy and thought, of a course that I was taking my senior year of college. So I did to take an elective in East Asian philosophy and religion. And as I did so, on the very first day of class, the professor, who was very renowned, not only as a practitioner of, the, of Confucianism and East Asian philosophy and thought, but also as one who was widely respected for his knowledge and insight into the subject. And so as he was reading through the attendance roll on the first day of class, I had never met him before, but he comes to my name and he says, Walt Nilsson, you're the student that's involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, aren't you? And I said, why, yes, I am. And he said, well, it looks like I'm going to have a very fun semester. In every class, he would start off and with identifying things that he thought were weaknesses in my faith, weaknesses in Christianity, why his line of thought and philosophy was superior and better, why Christianity would have no hold in China and other East Asian countries. In every class period, he, not only him directly, but would also seek to get other classmates to make a fool of or try to make a fool of the Christian who is in the class. Scripture is very clear to us, is very clear in its teaching. That if you are a worshiper of the God of the Bible, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that there will be times in your life where you will be directly targeted, directly persecuted, and at times, and even many times, that will occur through no fault of your own. And that is indeed the context of the psalm that we are reflecting on here today in Psalm 59. And David begins by reflecting on this truth that evil is a reality. And not simply is evil a reality, but evil is a personal reality. It is embodied and manifested in people, in personal beings. David begins to reflect on this reality by describing to God the situation in which he finds himself. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. David's problem is because there are people, there are people filled with evil who are bloodthirsty, who are fierce, who seek to devour him and are surrounding him and trying to kill him. Evil is a personal reality. 
It's a difficult concept for us to get a hold of, I think, because of so many different things in our culture. Evil largely is viewed in America as something that is not personal, but is impersonal. Moreover, as an impersonal force that is out there that influences the the actions of people. An impersonal force that at times needs to be balanced with good things and positive things. Now, I like Star Wars. I really enjoy Star Wars. I'm not as into it as many of you are, but I, I, I like Star Wars. But Star Wars is completely wrong when it comes to this area. And I know many of us would acknowledge that, but Star Wars is a dominant cultural force shaping our understanding about what good and evil is. And then there's this idea that evil, the dark side, Drawing on this Buddhistic concept, which George Lucas was into, which he would overtly deny, but he would say it more aligns with Buddhism than with anything else, Lucas's own self-assessment. The idea that is, being, that is being taught is that there is this force of evil, and the way that that evil comes about is that there is an energy field that is created by all living things and all living beings. And this energy field surrounds us, and it penetrates us, and it works through us. And the way that we can tap into it is through mental and psychological and even psychic exercises to engage in these things. And in George, Lucas's ter- in George Lucas's world, the way that that happens is that there is those that are particularly in tune can actually employ an energy amplifier to do superhuman tricks and to compel the force to act. Of course, that's a Hollywood version, great entertainment. I can't wait for the next movie to come out, personally. But... What happens with that, though, is that there is a widespread idea that, yes, there is this force of good and evil. There is this energy that is generated by all living beings. And what happens is that we need to tap into that energy, or we need to resist the bad energy and embrace the good energy. And that even people, as they tap into this energy, as they, as they, as they channel their, their mind, as they channel the personal energy generated within them, that they can actually influence the world around them, and they can influence the positive and the negative forces that are operating. Evil, accordingly, is this impersonal force that is in tension with good forces that are out there. But evil is not an impersonal force. It is not a yin and a yang where these two things are constantly re-attaining homeostasis as they come back into balance with each other. It's not a yin and a yang, nor is it karma. Karma being the idea that karma is an invisible, karma is the invisible power that balances the universe. That if the power is out of line, karma brings it back into line over the course of a person's life. But evil is not impersonal. It is deeply personal. There is a personal devil, a personal being who is the devil. There are his minions who are personal beings. And there are evil people who intend to do harm. And it is a personal evil embodied in people. Now, of course, there is no evil person who is beyond redemption. Nonetheless, evil is personal. There's another reason why this is such a difficult concept in our society. It's the view that is so common that people are inherently good. Now, Christians, many Christians buy into this, I believe, with a distorted view of a right teaching. Is that we do believe that every person is created in the image of God, and because they're created in the image of God, have inherent worth, dignity, and value. That there is still remnants of God's image on them that's manifests itself in love, in kindness, and compassion. 
whether people are Christians or not Christians. But many people buy into this idea that people are inherently good. In fact, there is one very prominent Christian leader. He was speaking two years after 9-11, and he was speaking about Osama bin Laden. And the question was asked, how should Osama bin Laden be dealt with? And what what does Osama bin Laden need to deal with his evil? And his answer was this. He said, I think he just needed a hug. And if I saw him, I I would hug him. Is, Is that I think bin Laden was somebody that didn't get enough hugs in his life. And so... Okay, and I, you know what? I bet he's right. I bet bin Laden didn't get enough hugs in his life. I'll, I, I can see that. But the reason why he was saying that is because he holds to this underlying belief that all people are inherently good. And so what happens if that person just gets loved enough, if they get hugged enough, then that will unleash the goodness that is inherent within them. It will unleash the goodness, and it will eradicate evil as the internal inherent goodness gets brought out, brought out of being inside of brought out of a person, and what is inside, the goodness is now expressed on the outside. He just needs a hug. But you see, David's problem, slavering at the mouth, David's problem was that he was surrounded by bloodthirsty men. And his experience of it is that he says it feels like he is being surrounded by a pack of ravenous dogs. Here's his description. Each evening, They come back. Who's they? In particular, it was Saul who was trying to kill him and Saul's men who were trying directly to kill him and waiting outside of his house so that the instant that he poked his head off, that they would lop his head off. Each evening, they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? Who's going to stop us? Who's going to prevent us from devouring whatever it is that we want to devour? Later on, it repeats it and adds this. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Now, for David, by all appearances, he was wholly at the mercy of the dog pack. Now, this image would have been very... Uh, relevant to Israelites, they would have understood exactly what David was referring to. Because the Israelites had dogs who were watchdogs, and they also had dogs to guard their herds. But what would happen is in the evening time, these dogs would come together and they would form semi-wild packs. Both dogs that were work dogs and other dogs from the woods. And the dogs would form semi-wild packs and they would, they would go through the city and they would go through the town and they would devour anything that was in their path. Trash, carrion, anything that they could kill, dead animals, or, as scripture alludes to in other places, a person if they wandered outside alone at night. And so what David is identifying is he says, my enemies are howling like dogs. They are prowling about the city. They are slavering at the mouth. They have one thing on their mind, and the one thing that is on their mind is to kill and to devour and to rip apart and to tear to shreds. They are a bunch of ravenous dogs. And what he is touching on is this reality that not only is evil a personal reality, but also in that personal reality of evil that Christians may and often are the target of it. For David, he accurately understood his situation. He said, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and they make ready. And David's actually correct. A lot of times we think we're innocent when we're not. But David actually was innocent in the situation. 
Maybe we don't quite have the experience that David does, being surrounded by those who are trying to kill us. But Christians in the Middle East do right now. This is the Arabic letter Nun. It's the letter that, is, that ISIS goes through a town and spray paints on the door of any Christian. It stands for the Nazarene, those that follow Jesus. And it's a sign that if that letter is sprayed on their door, it's a sign to call the wolf pack, to call the dog pack because it's a house to be murdered, raped, and slaughtered. It's a present reality of Christians through no fault of their own who are being targeted for evil. Of course, that is the most obvious and extreme example of that. Let me give you a much, much, much lesser example. When I was praying about, when Holly and I were praying about whether or not to accept the call to be senior pastor here at Cornerstone, and as Cornerstone was praying about that, I called up a mentor of mine to ask him his thoughts on the matter. And he proceeded, much to my surprise, to just undress me, to tell me all of my character flaws, all of my weaknesses and my abilities, all of my areas of incompetency, and also all the things that were wrong with the church and why this should not happen. It really surprised me. Um, one, not only because I respected this person, but I still do respect this, and I still do respect this person, but it really messed me up. And then a couple days later, he called me back and he said, well, I need to apologize to you. I need to repent of everything that I said. He said the reality was I was just jealous of the opportunity and I didn't want you to have it. And so what was it? It was through no fault of my own in that situation that, yes, there is a personal evil that comes at us. And in fact, Scripture tells us, particularly as New Testament Christians after the cross of Jesus Christ, that not only is evil a personal reality, but because it's a personal reality, we should expect the dog pack. We should expect to experience the dog pack in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. This is what credit to it is if you do something wrong and you get punishment and you survive. So what? Big deal. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That though he was innocent, suffered and was persecuted and ultimately killed even though he never did anything wrong so that we might have life. Evil is a personal reality. David knows that. But what I want us to focus on in the psalm here is how does David respond to that truth? How does David respond to the challenges that he faces? And the way that David responds is that he knows that God is is his help and he pursues God. 
And so here's what David does. And I want you to notice that this psalm is a prayer that David is giving to God. And notice how he responds to God and cries out in the situation. How he pursues God in the midst of the wolf pack, in the midst of the dog pack around him. And for those of you that were at a relational wisdom seminar, this is the P of the God positioning system of the GPS, to pursue God. Here's what David does, is he seeks him earnestly. And David, as we see reflected in the psalm, and not only have the narrative in 1 Samuel, but David talks to God about the situation. He talks to him about his emotions. And David is actually accurately aware of his own role in the situation and what he did or did not contribute to him. But notice what David is not doing. David is not drowning his sorrows. He's not mentally escaping through some form of self-gratification or pleasure. He's not gossiping. He's not bad-mouthing Saul. He's not politicking. He's not going about saying, don't you see, look at me, what a victim I am. Look how wrong everyone has been to me. He's not doing that. Is that David knows that God is his help. And because God is his help, David pursues God. Here's his cry to him. He says, awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, or God of Israel, rouse yourself. To punish all the nations. Spare none of those who, who treacherously plot evil. He is pursuing God in the midst of the situation that he is in. It's instructive for us of, of how to model our prayers if you're in a situation where you're surrounded or people are coming at you. It's to pursue God. To tell him, to talk with God about what's going on. Usually our response in situations where we're surrounded and we don't know what to do, our prayers go like this. Fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Or help me, just help me, just help me, make it go away, make it go away, make it go away. Just stop, 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 stop. That's usually about the depth of them, right? But what David's doing here and instructed to us is that he is pursuing God in the midst of it. He's talking to God about the situation. He's describing the situation to God, to God, and in doing so, he is orienting his mind around God and seeking to have God intervene in the situation. He pursues God. Not only does he know God has helped, but he, re- he pursues God, but then he reflects upon God. He reflects upon God's character. And again, if you were at the seminar, this would be part of the SOG principle of being God-aware and God-engaging. The question that you see David reflecting upon is who is God and how is the character of God reflected in this situation? The psalmist, he describes it in the psalm this way. And notice how he is drawing his mind and tuning his mind to pay attention and to reflect upon who God is. Having described the situation, he then says, but you, O Lord, you laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. David is reflecting upon the character of God and drawing upon that and trusting in that in his his situation. He pursues God and then he reflects upon him. What are some of the things that David particularly reflects upon? Well, it's God's power. God laughs at them. You hold all the nations in derision. We are intimidated by the world. God is not. 
That's Night at the Museum helps us understand. Is that God laughs at the forces that oppose him. He's not intimidated by them. He's also not indifferent to them. But he laughs at the forces that impose him because his power is infinite and can squash anything against him. And then David's reflection, he says, God, you laugh at them. But then he calls God, he says, God, you are my fortress. That David's own house, the place that we oftentimes go to for protection, David's house offered him no protection. In fact, David's house was a death trap. But he says, God, you are my fortress. What is a fortress? Who goes to a fortress? Who runs to a fortress? Those that are attacking or those that are being attacked? If you're going to go attack, are you hiding in a fortress? No, you leave the fortress. But if you're being attacked, you run and you hide inside the fortress. And that is what David is doing. He says, Lord, you are my fortress. It is to you that I run to hide myself in. I go to you for protection. For you are my, other passages, other passage, you are my strong tower. You are my strength. You are my rescue, my, my refuge. I'm not going to despair of these threats because you, O oh Lord, are greater than my enemies and you are able to thwart their schemes. Do you see how David is reflecting upon who God is? Here are a couple of questions to ask yourself, to journal about when faced with situations. And I do mean this. Ask yourself and answer these questions. When you feel that the dog pack is around you, you ask, who is God? What aspects of his character are relevant in this situation? What Bible passages speak truth that apply to the situation that I'm dealing with? Next question. How have I seen God's character at work in my own life? And then, how have I seen God's character at work in the life of the people of God? And to ask those questions and to reflect upon God, to reflect upon him and reflect upon his character. Now, you might be thinking, you know, when, if I've got the dog pack coming at me, I, I, I can't think about who God is. All I need right then is for the dogs to go away. And Scripture says, no, that's not what you need. What you need is God, and you need to know him, and you need to know him not in the absence of the dog pack, but especially, which you do need to know him in the absence of the dog pack, but you need to know him especially in the midst of it, when they're surrounding you, is to know who God is. And so these two aspects of pursuing God and reflecting upon God then leads to David bringing his requests to God. And this is what David's requests are. He says this, Kill them not. Don't kill them. That's what that means. Kill them not, let my pe- lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. The basic thrust is that David is just praying for the unhurried course of justice until its bitter end. Those that speak lies, may they be caught in their lies. His petition is for justice. But I believe that what's most important for us to see in the psalm is not so much what David prays for in his specific request, but why he prays for it. 
And David prays and makes these requests to God in order to glorify God. This is what David says. He says, kill, kill them not, lest my people forget. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the end of the earth. And again, if you're from the seminar, this is the G in the GPS, is to glorify God. Now, we need to explain this, because this just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, you've got ravenous dogs that are surrounding your house. They want to devour you. How easy for us to say is, you know, the last thing that is on my mind right now is to glorify God. The last thing on my mind is, how can I praise God in the midst of this? The thing that's on my mind is, get me out of here. We might even say, I don't have time to think about glorifying God right now. I mean, maybe if the dogs weren't surrounding me and barking at me right now, I could think about glorifying God. But I don't have time to deal with that. I just need these things gone. But David glorifies God, and we should too, because God's glory is your greatest security. His glory is your greatest security. That the reason for David's prayer, as he cries out and makes this petition, is not, God, I'm innocent. God, I'm innocent. I can't believe this is happening to me. How could this go on? Look, I've been trying to serve you. I didn't do anything wrong. God, God, this isn't right. It's an injustice. You you owe it to me. Rescue me. The world's not supposed to happen like this. God, I don't don't deserve this kind of trouble. Can you you fix this? It shouldn't be like this. Make it the way that it it should be. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even give the driving reason, God, I, I need you, though that's a valid reason, but that's not the reason that compels David to pray. The reason that compels David to make these requests is this, that my people, that they may know that God rules over Jacob, that God rules over his people to the ends of the earth. God's glory is your greatest security. And David prays for this because he knows that God will defend his name. And David brings the request to God, saying, God, bring this justice for one reason and one reason alone. And that reason is so that all the people, so that people and the people of God, my people, verse 11, people to the ends of the earth, verse verse 13, that all people would know. That yes, there is a living God who defends his glory. And this living God is just, and he is loving, and he is mighty, and God rules and protects his people. That's what drives his prayer. I hope that sounds familiar. I hope that sounds familiar. Because we saw almost this directly quoted about three weeks ago in David's statement about Goliath. That when David was going to attack Goliath because the name of God was being mocked, what David said was he said, you know, I will chop your head off and feed you to the birds and all that other great smack talk that he had, right? And then he says, why? He says, I I will defeat you. I will kill you and chop your head off. Why? That this assembly may know And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now think about this for a moment. That when David was stepping up to defend the name of God and God was empowering him to do so, David's driving motive and what made him successful in that was that David was yearning and longing for the glory of God to be made known among the people of God and to the ends of the earth. 
Completely different situation. David is not the one attacking, but being the one who is attacked right now. And as David is being attacked, as the enemies have surrounded him, David's prayer is the same. That when the enemies have surrounded me, God, would you defend me? God, would you watch over me? For you are my fortress and strength. Why? So that the world may know that you are God. The world may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, that all people may know that there is a living God who defends and, who defends and protects his people because there is no greater security than God and his glory because God will defend his name. And so it's a calling for us in the midst of it to glorify God. And that's exactly how the psalm concludes. It actually concludes in the midst of the wolf pack, in the midst of the dog pack, with David giving praises to God. He identifies the situation. He pursues God. He reflects upon God's character. He, re- he makes his request known to God, all with the overarching goal to glorify God. And he finally ends in exuberant praise to God. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praise to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. You hear what David is doing? He has reflected upon the character of God in his life, for you have been a fortress to me. You have been a refuge in the day of my distress. Therefore, verse 17, O my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O God, not just have been, but you, O God, are my fortress. You, O God, show me steadfast love, not in the absence of the dog pack, but in the midst of the dog pack. That God's protection comes to us it is reason for us to glorify God and to sing his praises. And for those of us who stand on this side of the cross, we have a greater security than the truth that David knew just because he reflected upon the character of God. But we have a greater demonstrated demonstration of that through the cross of Jesus Christ, who though he was innocent, was murdered for our iniquity. And Paul says in Romans 8 this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, listen, if God has loved you so much that he is willing to go to the extent of giving his own precious son to die on the cross so that you can have life, if God is willing to do that, what are you concerned about? If God is willing to go to that extent, how will he not graciously also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is bigger than the dog pack. He is bigger than, than the challenges and struggles that we face in this life. And so it just calls us to pursue God and above all, to glorify him. Let's pray together. Father, I praise you that you are bigger than the dog pack. Father, in the midst of the challenges and struggles, 
my world reduces, the entire world reduces to the size of me. The entire world reduces to the size of to what I can see. And Father, it is so limited. Lord, it is just a fraction of a pixel on a high-definition television. Lord, what I can see is just one thread in a tapestry. It is just one shard in a gargantuan mosaic. Father, what I see is so limited, but Lord, you see all. You are over all. You are bigger than all. You are more powerful than all. So, Father, I pray that you would consume us with a vision of you. Lord, that you would take our blinders off from beyond our little situation to see you and to see what you are doing. And because we see you and reflect upon who you are, Lord, that you would fill us with comfort and peace. And, Father, that you would work in us to glorify you. That above all else, your name might be honored and glorified in our lives, in our homes, in this community, and to the ends of the earth. Father, would you preserve us? Would you protect us for the sake of your name and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.